0: Y'all doing all right today? Okay. All right. Good to see everybody. Glad you're here. My name's Carter. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church, and I'm grateful that you're worshiping with us today. We're going to finish out our series in Jonah. So we'll be in Jonah chapter four today. If you want to turn there or find it on your device, of course, we'll have it on the screens for you as well. But I hope that if you've been here over the last three or four weeks, you found this series as helpful as I have, because I think we've seen some very unexpected things in Jonah, haven't we? I mean, it's not like any of the old Old Testament prophets that we've read before. It's not like, you know, some of that stuff because there's judgment and and it's always on a rebellious people. Like Israel's been rebellious, the nations have been rebellious, and so there's judgment from the prophet, from God, to the world. But see, Jonah was the rebellious one here. It, it was very unusual. Jonah's very rebellious and yet God is gracious with him. He's patient with him and he still uses him in the mission to preach the gospel to the world, or to preach his message of mercy. So, quick recap here. Chapter 1, we saw Jonah run away from God's mission, right? And For that very reason, because he, he, he wasn't okay with God using him to show mercy and preach a message of mercy to a pagan nation. He didn't want that. But even in his disobedience, God used Jonah to save some pagan sailors along the way. And then in chapter 2, after Jonah was thrown overboard, he was swallowed by the fish and he hit rock bottom. We saw that God is the one to put him at rock bottom, Right? And he repented and he turned back to God even in the depths, in in the depths of his despair, in the depths of Sheol is what he called it. He turns to God and he repents. And then in chapter three, he took steps of active obedience. That was what we saw last week, you know? he, he, He did what God already told him to do. He realized God had given him a message. He needed to go preach that message and he took steps to be obedient in that and deliver that message to Nineveh and they miraculously were saved. Remember that? They repented miraculously. They shouldn't have. By all intents and purposes, it didn't look like that would happen. And yet they did. God used him in that, but something's still not quite right with Jonah here. It's just not quite right. On the outside, it looks like he's being obedient. He is being obedient. But there's still something wrong on the inside, and that's what we're going to see today in chapter 4. There's this bad attitude that stands in stark contrast to God's attitude here. So we're going to see in chapter 4 that God wasn't after mere obedience. All right, He was after Jonah's heart. He's a compassionate God, and he wants Jonah's heart to be captured by the same kind of compassion that he has. So here's the main point. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Let God's compassion capture your heart today. That's what we're going to walk away with out of Jonah chapter 4. It's a good way to end our series, I think. God's compassion should capture our heart and turn us into compassionate people. He doesn't just want our actions. He wants our heart, right? It's not just what we do it's also what we desire. It's actually primarily about what we desire, because what we desire will lead to what we do, as we've talked about here before. So when selfishness or sin or hatred is something that captures our heart, it's going to make things get a little weird in our lives, isn't it? You know, I mean, usually we start to act a little crazy. We act irrational. I mean, have you ever seen anybody act a little irrational before? It's, it's the only redeeming quality of social media, I think is that you get the reels of people acting like fools. You know, I mean, that's we all like to laugh at other people acting like fools because we ourselves don't want to realize and be confronted with our own foolishness, I think. And so we like to laugh at other people acting like this. And what they call them nowadays, and sorry if this is your name, they call them Karens, right? We've all heard of the Karens. If your name's Karen, I'm so sorry, it's very tragic for you. But that's what, I don't know why, people on the internet, people on the interwebs out there are calling this a Karen moment. But it's when somebody loses control. And they basically throw an adult temper tantrum, like Jonah. Jonah is, <laughs> I think he's the original Karen here, okay? <laughs> I mean, we'll see We see him do that here. He throws this temper tantrum. And usually temper tantrums have these kind of components. To them. They have three main components, I think. A justification of your actions, a gross exaggeration, and then a melodramatic response, of course. We've all seen this, especially with children. Parents, if, you're, if you've ever been around children or if you have children of your own, this is what kids do all the time. I see it every single day. I hit, I hit my sister because she was being mean to me, right? So there's a justification for the action. But then there's also usually a very gross exaggeration. Man, well, she always does this. She's always mean to me. She hurt me so bad. She hurt my feelings, it makes me just want to die, right? You know what I mean? It's like, oh my gosh. It's an exaggeration of what's going on here, followed by the melodramatic response. Of course, there's usually screaming, crying, crying. Sometimes flailing about, you know, sometimes uh, stomping and huffing. There's all these melodramatic responses. Kids do this all the time. And that's Jonah right here in this story. I mean, he basically throws this temper tantrum with God. But God so graciously and patiently comes to him and asks him some questions. Are you right to be this way? Shouldn't I show compassion to other sinners just like I've shown compassion to you? That's what he said. That's what God's asking him here. God's trying to show Jonah And us, I think, that there's something he's after more than mere obedience. He wants a different kind of obedience from us. He wants us to desire the right things, to desire what he desires, not just to do the right things. He wants us to love what he loves. He wants us to let his compassion capture our hearts today. So let's go ahead and read this chapter. We'll see how that plays out for us. We're going to find out how this story ends. We're going to talk about three big things throughout today's sermon. Jonah's lack of compassion... God's great compassion, and then how we can be compassionate in response. So basically, Jonah's compassion, God's compassion, our compassion. um, That's what we're going to talk about. Let's start with chapter 3, verse 10, the end of chapter 3, just so we can get the context for where we're at, and then we're going to go right into chapter 4 and read the whole thing so we can get the context of it, all right? Chapter 3, verse 10 says this, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from his disaster he had threatened them with. And he did not do it. Now, remember, the Assyrians repented here, right? This was a miraculous thing. They turned to God for mercy. They heard the warning and they miraculously believed and then stopped what they were doing in active obedience. Remember that? Chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. This is where the irony is right here. I mean, he's he's displeased with this? What? What's going on? Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. just What a melodramatic response, right? The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? I mean, notice how we don't have an answer. This is a rhetorical question. God's gently probing him and leading him to probe his own heart. What's going on, Jonah? What are, you, what are you talking about? Verse 5, Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. So he didn't even answer God in this. He just God asks him the question gently, and then he leaves the city and goes to the east of it, which is a symbol for moving away from God's presence again in the Bible. Whenever somebody moves east, it's usually to move out of God's presence. And he made for himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. So he's still hoping, <laughs> against all hope, that God's going to destroy them anyway. And then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. So he's greatly displeased in verse 1, but now he's greatly pleased with the plant. So we see a play going on here in the story. And when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and wanted to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Man, what a dramatic person, right? I mean, Jonah is just something else. And then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So God's getting at something here. This is in direct parallel to the question that he asked before about Nineveh, right? He's he's pointing out the absurdity of Jonah's responses here. And Jonah, of course, what's he say? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. And that's how it ends. (laughs) So it's very abrupt. And some translations say cattle. Cattle. Right? So it's got all these people and then some cows too. You know, it's like, what is, well, how, how does it, why does it end this way? But this book ends very abruptly. And of course, it's beautifully, beautifully crafted to show us some things about our own heart here through the heart of Jonah. And it's showing us some things about God. God had compassion on this entire city of evil people, including their animals and everything in it. That's the point there at the end. But here's our first section God's compassion is contrasted with. Jonah's lack of compassion. So you can write this down. Jonah lacked compassion. That's the first kind of thing that we'll talk about here today. It's very clear that God's compassion hadn't captured Jonah's heart at this point. You see the word compassion three times in this entire chapter. First, in verse 2, when Jonah says God is gracious and compassionate. It's a word used almost exclusively to describe God's compassion for his people throughout the Old Testament. But then in verses 10 and 11, our translation, we read, used the word care, you care about, but it also can be translated in compassion. Some of your translations may even have said that. You can care about or have compassion for the plant, Jonah, or may I not care about or have compassion for the great city, it's the same kind of word. It's, it's a different word than verse 2, but it's still translated the same with a similar meaning. It's a concern for, it's a pity for, it's a grieving over, it's a compassion for something. So what that means is there's a heart attachment there. It means that your heart gets attached to something that that affects your emotions when that thing is affected. Does that make sense? You're attached to it. You have compassion for it. You identify with it. There's an attachment there. Jonah's heart was a. He was not attached to something that God's heart was attached to. Yeah, God's heart was attached to the Assyrian people. He loved even these rebellious, violent, sinful people. Jonah's heart was attached to hating the Assyrians. It's so the complete opposite. But his heart was also attached to a plant. Something so trivial, right? So when God relented of the disaster for Nineveh, a little piece of Jonah died inside. That's kind of what, what's getting across here. Because his, his heart was attached to hating them. So when God didn't do that and give justice to them the way he thought God ought to give justice, a little part of him died. But then but then trivially, we also see the same thing about the plant. When the plant died, a little piece of Jonah died inside. So there's something that's way off here in Jonah's heart, right? If two of these things together are equal for him, but God asks why his heart's attached to the plant more than to people? Why something so trivial? Just think about how silly it is. I mean, God set it up here to show Jonah and us, as we read the story, the absurdity of Jonah's response. Because it ultimately reveals a disordered love in Jonah's heart. He's not loving something that God loves, he's loving something that God doesn't love, as a matter of fact. So you can write this down lack of compassion for lost people comes from disordered love in our heart. There's a disorder, something's off about what we love. It's, It's like smoke to a fire, okay? The smoke, though it might be dangerous in and of itself, isn't the source of the problem. The fire is always the source, right? So whenever you see smoke, you don't just open a window and hope it goes away. Right? That's, you're not just trying to deal with the smoke. you try to figure out what the source of it is so that you can deal with that. You've got to put the fire out. In the early days of planting uh, Mercy Hill Church in Greensboro... We had this happen one time, okay? We, we were unloading everything on a Sunday afternoon because we met in the afternoons at that point. We didn't have our own spot. It was all mobile. So we had to get everything out of a trailer every single week. And we spent like four hours, five hours setting everything up. Well, we were getting stuff off the trailer and we'd already gotten off the speakers and the production team was setting everything up. The worship team was set, setting everything up. And all of a sudden, I hear people yelling and we run into the s- sanctuary and there's like smoke everywhere. It, it, something's on fire. They don't know what it is. And all of a sudden, somebody realizes the back of one of the speakers has caught on fire and there's smoke filling the room and everybody goes and there's people, you know, ripping things out of the wall and stuff, not unlike some kind of incident we had here a couple of Christmases ago. And if, and if you weren't here, ask somebody who was, okay? There was, there, was, there was an explosion, there was a puff of smoke, there was some, somebody had spilled something in the, in the ground. And, you know, there's always a problem that the smoke is just the identifier of the problem, Right? you gotta, you got to deal with the actual problem that's underneath of that. And Jonah's anger here is just the smoke to a, to a deeper fire. Because he, he has a disordered love that is what really needed to be dealt with. He loved himself. He loved his own sense of morality. He loved his own comfort more than he loved sinners that he had been sent to by God. Man, God used the plant to reveal this to him, the trivialness of this plant. He cared more about how he was affected than he cared about how lost people would be affected for eternity. Man, this is how religious or moralistic people tend to be. Religiosity or morality is only concerned with doing the right thing and appearing to be right. I mean, this is still a very Jewish way to think, unfortunately. I heard uh, Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro talking about this. They're both modern Jews. Um, They were in a roundtable discussion talking about morality and things, and they didn't see anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures that they adhere to, that there's this notion that God cares more about your heart motivations or your thoughts than your actions. They're like, no, no, no. If Your actions are the only thing that affect other people. I don't see anywhere in the Old Testament where God's interested in your heart motivation behind it. As long as you do the right things, that's all that matters. And listen, I don't think they fully meditated on Jonah or really either, any other part of the Old Testament, really, if they, if they really truly believe that. Because even in Deuteronomy 6, 5, for example, it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That shows us God's after more than just our strength, our actions. He's after our heart and soul. Amen. He wants us to love what he loves. We're supposed to love him first. It says love the Lord your God, right? There's something deeper that he wants here than just mere obedience. He wants compassion to capture our heart. So what he's after goes much deeper than just what we do. It's what we desire. It's not merely the obedience. It's obedience in a different way. It's obedience that comes from a rightly ordered love, a love for God and love for neighbor. That's what Jesus teaches us in Matthew 22, right? The great commandment. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he's actually tapping into Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 that we just read. But he's also saying, then go and love your neighbor. So, so love God and love others, that's the rightly ordered love that God is trying to push us to. Maybe you guys have heard this from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as well about love. It says, if I speak human or angelic angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love's got to be at the bottom of it. You've got to have a rightly ordered love, he's saying. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith, all faith, so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. He's saying love's got to be rightly ordered here. Love's got to be the thing at the, at the bottom of it all. We've got to have a rightly ordered love in our lives because what we do won't matter if we don't have the right love underneath of it. So the point is this, God wants to reorder our love. That's what, that's what, he, that's what he's trying to do in Jonah's life here. He's trying to show him, hey, Listen, man, all this trivial stuff that you care about, it doesn't really matter. Love the right things. Love what I love. Love me and then love the lost, right? Because if we love all this other stuff for our own sake, then we're going to fail to actually love other people, especially those who are lost. They're just going to irritate us. They're not doing all the right things. They're not as good as we are, right? So it's going to get frustrating. And he drives the home point here through Jonah's story. We can't love being religious more than we love people. We can't love what that does in our own lives and how it affects us more than how other people's eternities are affected. We can't think we're superior to anyone because of how we live or even what we believe. That's the that, Man, it's just so interesting how we'll do that in our lives. If it was all about obedience and nothing else, man, this story would have ended in chapter three, right? I, I mean, the Ninevites repented miraculously great right into the story. That would have been perfect. And Jonah was obedient. So, uh, That's where it stops, right? No, that's not where it stops because God still cares about Jonah's heart. Jonah's heart's not right. God's pushing Jonah to adopt compassion that he has on sinners. That's why he asked Jonah twice, are you sure you should be thinking this way? Jonah, 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 are you sure that you should be angry here, bud? Right? I mean, think about what Jonah's doing. I mean, it's every preacher's dream to have this kind of response, is it not? I mean, Jonah preached, and 120,000 people in a whole city of evil, violent people, including a king, turn and repent and turn to God for mercy and stop doing the evil things. That's what it says here in the text. They stopped their violent ways. But his heart wasn't for that. He said to God, I knew. I I knew you'd do this. I knew you'd be like this. I knew you were going to be merciful when I didn't want you to be merciful. I knew you were going to have compassion when I didn't want you to show compassion. I don't like it. God, I don't want what you want. God, I don't love what you love. He's justifying himself. He's justifying his actions. And his justification is that God is too compassionate. God's too merciful. You're too merciful, God. What, What are you doing? Man, that's not usually what you hear people say in today's culture, right? Usually people are like, well, God's too judgmental. He, he's too judgmental. He, he does. Why does he allow evil? Why does he allow all this stuff? He's not compassionate enough. Jonah's like, no, you're too compassionate, God. I don't understand why you wouldn't punish evil people. I don't like this. So this should fly in the face of what anybody would say about God not being compassionate enough. Or if people who say that God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New Testament. Oftentimes people will say that the God of the Old Testament is just. Vengeful, narcissistic dictator who frequently committed genocide and is only about judging people, right? No, no God, God relents. God, if they turn to God, He is so compassionate. And, and by the way, the underlying thing here is that this is a miracle, right? Salvation's a miracle. So, who do you think prompted their hearts to turn this way? Man, this God in Jonah is so compassionate that a religious moralist like Jonah. Can't fathom why he'd let them off the hook. This religious person goes, no, I don't agree with that, God. Sure, he was glad that God showed him compassion when he was in the belly of the fish, wasn't he? He was glad about that. He he deserved it though, you see. He's Jewish, man. He's one of God's chosen people, right? He's a good guy. He's a prophet. He's already preached and had some success. God loves him, he deserves it, but not them. God showed compassion toward those that he deemed sinners or undeserving. He was not okay with it. So he'd miss something important about God's compassion. You can write this down for us. Moralistic people hate that God shows mercy to others besides themselves. That's what moralistic people look like. They hate that God shows mercy to anybody besides themselves because they really deep down believe they deserve it and the other people don't. This is why we read the parable of the prodigal son. I can't get it out. It's too many things to say. The parable of the prodigal son. I won't rehash the whole thing. We went over this a few weeks ago, but this is exactly why the older brother was furious with the father for showing mercy to the son, the younger son who had gone away. He, was, he had lived a licentious lifestyle. He'd wasted all the money. He'd taken everything and wished his father dead, and then he came back in humility, and the older brother was not okay with the fact that the father brought him back in. He just wasn't okay. He hated that his father showed mercy to somebody he deemed unworthy. But Christianity is such that anybody who repents and believes and returns to God, anybody who's willing to do that, God will save them. No matter what sins they've committed, no matter what they've done, no matter who they've hurt, man, if they turn to God and repent, they can be forgiven. That is compassion at a totally different level. That is radical compassion of a different kind that we can't Possibly fathom, and quite frankly, if we're honest, we're probably uncomfortable with a little bit. I remember talking to one of my roommates in college about this. He wasn't a Christian, to my knowledge, he's still not. I haven't talked to him in years. He explored it for a while. You know, he thought he was exploring religious ideologies. And I remember one day uh, when we lived together, it was me and I had I had two roommates. One of them was a Christian. One of them was a believer with me, and the other one was not. And this is the one I'm talking about. We got in a conversation about a news article that we had just read. It was about a pedophile who had gotten caught, and he was doing jail time. And so we were talking about this, as college students tend to do, you know, talking about the whole situation and how tragic and devastating it is, and then inevitably it turned spiritual in our conversation because that's, you know, I mean, that just, it's hard not to on deep things like this. And I remember saying to him, hey, you know, the crazy thing is I'm no better than the pedophile because I've sinned against God too, just in other ways. And I'll never forget, when I said that, my roommate was disgusted with that statement. He was incensed. He was like, no, no, what are you talking about? There is no possible way you're worse than a pedophile. Carter, you're a much better person than a pedophile. You're not evil. That was evil. I was like, man, all of our hearts are evil. It just comes out in different ways in our lives. We all rebel against God in different ways. And I explained that if the pedophile would repent and turn from those evil ways and turn to God for mercy, God would show it to him. And my roommate was disgusted. No, I would never believe in a God like that. Very interesting. He wouldn't consider it as a possibility. But see, the standard that we have to live up to is not each other. The problem is he was comparing himself, me, anybody else that he knew to that person and the egregious nature of what they'd done. The problem is the standard is God, and it's perfection. That's the standard. <laughs> it's not anything else, right? Right? And so you see this kind of thing, and you think, well, I'm better. No, no, no. The problem is none of us are good enough. God's standard is perfection. We don't measure up no matter what our sin looks like or how deep it goes. The only hope we have is God's compassion, his voluntary compassion for us. His heart was attached. How do you think God's heart got attached to us in this story? Because, see, in Jonah, his heart was attached to hating them. There was something ethnic. There was something nationalistic there about that something that he developed over time. His heart was attached to the plant because of how the plant affected him. How do you think we affect God? Did God have to create us? Are we necessary for God? No, 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 we're not. God adopted that attachment voluntarily because he loves us. That is so beautiful. So parents, next time you're struggling to show compassion toward your kids, or, or if you struggle to show compassion toward a coworker who's wronged you, Or if you struggle to show compassion toward a driver who's making you late because they're going super slow, which happens to me every single day of my life here in (laughs) Roanoke. Or if you struggle to show compassion to your spouse when they do something to frustrate you or not serve you the way that you think you ought to be served. Or if you struggle to share Jesus with somebody that you might deem unworthy, remember what Jonah is teaching us here. God's compassion should be capturing your heart. Let God's compassion capture your heart. Remember that you needed compassion. From God, because God is compassionate for you. So let's talk about that as the second thing here. God's compassionate. God is compassionate. See, Jonah lacked compassion, but God is compassionate, thank God. He cared about Jonah, an Israelite, one of God's chosen people. Yes, he cared about him, but he also cared about Nineveh, a pagan nation that was violent and committed egregious sins against his people and against God himself. I mean, the modern equivalent of this today might be, I mean, there's probably a lot we could come up with, but it's probably realizing that God cares about his church all over the world. Yes, we're his chosen people now, right? We have followed Jesus, and he cares about his people. He loves us, of course. But he also cares about those who persecute us or who hate him. That's, the, that's maybe the modern equivalent. I read Richard Wurmbrand's book, Tortured for Christ, this summer. I think I've referenced it before for you guys. But it chronicles his struggles with the communist government that took over Romania after Nazi occupation. You know, World War II was a terrible time for many people, especially Jews, uh, which he was of Jewish descent. But he said under Nazi occupation in Romania, it wasn't as bad for him. He might go to jail for 30 days for preaching about Jesus and then get let out, and that's what it looked like. But under communist occupation, when the Russians came in after World War II and took over and put a communist regime in place, he spent a total of 14 years in prison off and on, really in two big stints for him, and he was tortured daily repeatedly tortured physically, psychologically, to turn him from his faith in Jesus to this atheistic worldview. But he said in the book that through the torture of him, you know, every day, he actually learned to love, like truly love the people that were his torturers. I mean, can you imagine that? Rather than hating them more and more over time, he grew more and more compassionate. Toward them, Because he could see just their utter lostness and confusion and the depravity of their hearts, and it broke his heart for them. He endured being beaten. He endured being tortured with machines. I mean, he was put in this box, well, you know, the spikes. He was put in this box multiple, multiple times, and the spikes were on him. He couldn't move. He would bleed. I mean, he, was, he was urinated on. He was defecated on. He was repeatedly told his family was dead or his son had recanted the faith and become a communist. Any number of other things that were done in his life. And yet he loved those people who persecuted him so much that he couldn't help but share Jesus with him every single moment that he got the opportunity. His compassion was a reflection of God's compassion for them. When God's compassion captures your heart, it will change how you view others. You can write that down as a, as a takeaway for us. It will change how you view other people if you have God's compassion. It has to. Because you see them how God sees them. God is a compassionate God. And he sees people, yeah, as sinners, as broken, but it grieves his heart. right? No matter what sins they've committed. One indication of that is Jonah using this word great over and over again in the story to describe these agents of chaos and evil. You know, the word great is used at least nine times. The great city, the great storm, the sailors had great fear. The great fish comes. I mean, it's this literary device throughout the book to emphasize the greatness of the depravity, the greatness of the sin, the greatness of the need, but the greatness of God's compassion and response. Isn't that beautiful? But then compared to the greatness of Jonah's lack of compassion, really. Because remember, verse 1, Jonah was what? He was greatly displeased. Same word that's used. So, so, so God's trying to show us something here. It's, it's in direct opposition To God's compassion that Jonah has all this lack of compassion. It's great. So we should ask, do we feel the greatness of God's compassion for others? Do we feel that personally? Do you hear a verse like John 3.16 and really believe it? Let me read it for you just to remind you. Do you really believe this applies to everyone? Do you really believe this is true? For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Man, the scope of God's compassion the world, everyone. It's for everyone who believes. Anyone and everyone who will believe and put their hope in God, hope that he relents. 2 Peter 3.9 also teaches us about God's compassion. It says, The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's delaying because He's patient. And He wants to save anyone who will believe. People ask, why? Why, why do we have to live now? Pain, suffering. This is why. We've seen this through the book of Jonah. He used the storms. He used the chaos. He uses the evil. Because he wants to save the world. Nothing less than the world will do for God. And he deserves nothing less, by the way, right? This is God's heart. He's a compassionate God, not wishing that anybody should perish. So he's patient. Do you and I have that same heart? That's the question here. Do we have this? God is compassionate. He's a compassionate God. Are you and I compassionate people? Do we have compassion for lost people around the world? Do we have compassion for the tribes in Africa or South Asia or South America that don't know him, that have never had access to the gospel because nobody's taken it to them yet? Do we have compassion? But I also think it's worth noting God's concern for the city here too. So let's not miss this. Do we have the same compassion for our city that God had for Nineveh? Right? Think about this. God loved Nineveh so much that he sent Jonah to preach a message to warn them. And then he miraculously worked in their hearts. And they repented and they turned from their evil ways. Write this down. God loves Roanoke with compassion, the same way that He loved Nineveh. God loves our city the same way. Not just the beauty of the mountains around, it's beautiful out here, right? The glory of His creation. We love Roanoke, it's beautiful. All all of the creation displays God's glory, yes. But He loves the city, He loves the people, He loves the broken systems, He loves the terrible government. He loves the broken institutions. He loves it all. And he cares so much about our city that he sent you and me to live here to share the gospel with the people around us. Isn't that incredible? That's God's compassion. He cares about Roanoke so much that he sent his church to it. Remember, we've talked about before, how will they hear if we don't preach? And how will they respond if we don't share the gospel with them? God has sent us We're a part of his compassion to the city. We're a part of his compassion. So here's the third thing we're going to talk about today. How can we respond to this? We can have compassion for the lost. Yeah, I know. Captain Obvious, right? (laughs) Sometimes it just helps to write it down. Sometimes it just helps. Have compassion for the lost. How can we care about so many things in our life that don't matter, yet we don't care about the one thing that should matter the most? Loving God and loving others. How? The trivial things, the plants, right? See, this is our purpose now. We talk about this all the time. Do you live your life for your own purposes or do you recognize that your new purpose is to live for God if you start following Jesus? Because that means being like Jesus. Yeah, we've talked about that, but what does that mean? Primarily to to love others around you. He's not interested in mere obedience. There's something deeper. He wants us to love what he loves. He wants our hearts to be after his heart. If you're not compassionate the way that God is compassionate, then God's compassion probably hasn't come alive in you yet. It hasn't captured your heart. And the strange thing is, man, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not saved. I think that's what's complex about Jonah's story here. The parallels are very clear. Jonah is saved, if we want to put it in New Testament terminology. He is a prophet of God from the Jewish nation. He's he's dialoguing with God here. Yeah, he's probably saved. But there's something not right about his heart yet, right? God is dealing with him in some way. God is working in his heart to show him very gently, very graciously, listen, something's not right about what you love yet still. Something's not quite right about your compassion, Jonah, because your lack of compassion shows that you're not captured by my compassion yet. Maybe you're right there with him today. Maybe you've grown up in church all your life. Maybe you're a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for years. Maybe you've been a Christian for months. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But maybe you've seen... In this series, God challenging what you love. Maybe you're like me. I mean, I'm telling you, this series has gotten deep down inside my soul. I'm recognizing that there's something, there's a disconnect in my heart here about what I'm compassionate toward versus what I see God being compassionate toward. I'm seeing that I'm going to have, I'm having to lay some things down and say, God, I realize that I've probably gotten a little comfortable here. I've probably started to notice some trivial things in my life that have maybe taken precedent over the most primary and important things in my life. So if you're like me, you might ask, how do we let God's compassion capture our heart? That's the question here. That's the question that the book is leaving us to ask. I think it leaves us with a cliffhanger for a reason because there's a rhetorical question that we need to ask here. How do we let God's compassion capture our heart? What steps should we take? we got to have the steps, right? Well, I'll give you three things, okay? And that's all, this will finish our time together. The first thing is this, allow lostness to grieve you. You know, when you think of lostness, does it grieve you? Jonah grieved over Nineveh's salvation. (laughs) God was pushing him to grieve over their lostness, right? Ephesians tells us that we once walked in darkness ourselves. We were once lost. Do you remember those days? Do you remember those days without God's grace in your own life? Do you remember how it felt to have no purpose, to be empty inside, to feel like you were alone? Do you remember all those things? Grieve over the fact that there are billions of people in this world, that feel that way right now. There are billions of people in this world that are lost. They don't know the God of the universe like we know. They don't have that sense of purpose. They don't have that sense of love, acceptance. They don't have any of that. They're trying to find their own way. Do you grieve over that? Listen, Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to China in the late 1800s, said that he couldn't stand to be in large gatherings of the church when he went back to England because he knew there were still so many millions of people in China who didn't worship God and have those kind of gatherings themselves. He just couldn't stand it. Being gathered in a place like this would bother him. It would grieve his heart because he knew there were so many people across the world, including in China, that didn't worship and gather to worship God like we do. Now, I'm not saying we should be sad about the fact that we can gather and worship at all, but does a piece of us grieve over the fact that as we sit here worshiping our God, there's over 100,000 people in this city who probably don't know him and aren't gathered here with us this morning. Do we grieve over that? Do we even consider the people in our city that don't know God? His compassion, has it captured your heart? Now, when we hear about the coven of witches that I mentioned last week, does it anger you or does it grieve you? When we hear about the LGBTQ community or the trans activists and things like that, does it anger you or does it grieve you? When somebody makes fun of us for our faith or speaks directly against God and misrepresents Him or what we believe, Does it anger you or does it grieve you? See, we need to grieve over lostness like God grieves. We need to grieve over the lostness in our city if we want to foster compassion for the people around us. But the second thing is this, grieve over your own sin. And this is maybe even harder, isn't it? (laughs) I mean, Jonah didn't do that. He justified himself. He responded to God with anger. He justified his sin and through this temper tantrum, he was so angry that he was willing to die over it. Melodramatic response. What a drama queen, right? Trivial issues like plants. How do you and I do that in our lives? What temper tantrums do you throw with God? Because, see, we all have plants that we tend to value over people. Here's how you find out what those are in your life, all right? You ask this question. You have to do a little self-reflection, all right, a little self-awareness. goes a long way. You ask this question, what can't I live without? What is it in my life that I just cannot do without? I've got to have that thing or else I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be at peace. I'm not going to be okay. What is that in your life? What, those are the disordered loves that he's trying to show Jonah here. This is what we talked about in chapter 2 with the cherishing of idols. These are those idols that we cherish. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but this, this whole chapter, chapter 4, is kind of a review of all the chapters that have come before this, right? So we're bringing up all these old themes here. So we're talking about cherishing idols. What, what can't you live without? What would make you want to die if you didn't have it anymore? Would you rather die than lose your job because of the success, the career, whatever it is? Would you rather die than lose a loved one like a spouse or a child or a parent? That's a hard one. What do you put above God? Would you rather die than lose your health or your home or your money? Man, what makes life worth living for you? What do you cherish above God? What's your heart attached to? Because that's the word compassion here. What are you you attached to more than God and what he loves? And then the other question that you have to ask yourself is, can you lay that down before him? Whatever it is, can you grieve over your own sin and idolatry? Because if you can't, it's essentially a forgotten grace, or maybe it's a grace that you never knew in the first place. You've either forgotten God's grace to provide all those things in your life, or you've never believed it in the first place. You've forgotten that it's all from him, you don't believe that it's all from Him. You, you can't live without this other thing, but you could live without Him. And you functionally live that way every day. See, we have to grieve over the fact that we cherish our way above God's way all the time. We have, to, we have to grieve over the fact that we would rather live without God and check out and do our own thing over here than actually live with Him and be with Him in spirit and in truth. So grieve over your own sin. But the third thing... We could say a lot more about that. But the third thing is, if we're going to let God's compassion capture our heart, remember God's compassion for us, right? I mean, come on. We're gospel-centered. Caitlin said it. We have to go back to the gospel. Remember God's compassion for us. This is the beauty of Jonah's story. We can contrast Jonah's lack of compassion with God's great compassion. Jonah went outside the city, looking down on it, hoping for its destruction, right? That's That's how it ends here for him. He's angry about it. He wants, he wants the destruction of the city, but do you remember somebody else standing outside of a city in the New Testament? Do you remember Jesus standing outside of a city in Jerusalem, up on a hill overlooking it, about to go into it? Do you remember what Jesus felt? He wasn't angry. He wept out of compassion because they were like lost sheep without a shepherd. That was his heart for the city, right? Jonah grieved over God's compassion. Jesus grieved over the lostness that he saw in the world. And Jonah's over here grieving over the compassion God's shown to the lost. Jesus is over here grieving for the lost. Jonah went outside the city and sat up on a hill out of anger. Jesus went outside of the city and hung up on a cross up on a hill called Calvary to save the world out of compassion. And see, that's our sign now. You know, we talked about the sign of Jonah a few weeks ago. The sign of Jonah was, yeah, three days, three nights, all that kind of stuff, but it was really the compassion that God was willing to show the lost. That's the sign. It was the sign to the Jewish religious leaders. Listen, being Jews is great. That's that's the lineage Jesus came from. But that's not what it's all about. It's compassion for the lost. That's the sign of Jonah. That we get to look in and see that God's had compassion, so much compassion on us. He's loved us so much that he entered into the world to save us. So in order for us to have compassion on the lost, we have to first remember God's compassion for us. What, What compassion has he shown you? What has he brought you out of in your life? We have to recognize our own need for God's mercy and turn to him because of his compassion. You can write it down this way. Jesus is God's compassion for us. Jesus is God's compassion. And when we turn to him, and we look at him and we approach him and we're willing to bow to him, how can we not be compassionate toward others when we respond that way? How can we not then? There's no possible way we can look at God's compassion for us and be able to sit still and withhold compassion. I'm telling you, it really is the only thing that can capture our heart and push us to love others like God loves them and us. So to put it into context for our church here, it's what compelled Victoria to enter into the foster care system here in our city and try to make an impact there. That's what compelled her to do that. It's what compelled the Flints to pursue adoption and try to make an impact in that way. It's what compels the Frasers To serve at the least of these ministries and serve the homeless in Roanoke to make an impact there. It's what compelled Dazut to go back for six weeks to serve at the orphanage she grew up in in Africa before she was adopted here in America so that she could make an impact there. It's what compelled Alale to invite somebody that she'd never met before to church. And when that person got here, they heard the gospel for the first time, believed, and then they got baptized at Easter. It's what compels Kara stone to reach out to other moms and to invite them into her life so she can make an impact there how many other stories could i go around and that's what compels us it's god's compassion can't be anything else that would do that in our lives and it's what can compel you to get off the sidelines and into the game maybe you've just been watching maybe you're just watching and you're like "Well, i want a piece of that well listen respond to god's compassion in your life Because here's the hard reality. Either you're deeply involved in the mission of God in this world, his His compassion, or you're disobedient to him. There's no in-between. You're either living on mission or you're not. There is no lukewarm Christian here. Just not part of the category for what it means to follow Jesus. It's all or nothing. He tells us to take up our cross daily and follow him and live as a sacrifice, and I can't wait in in about a month, we're going to have a sermon series come up called Deep Dependent Worship. That's been our focus all year, is fostering deep dependent worship on God. So we're going to have He Gave next week, and we're going to go into deep dependent worship, and when we do that, we're going to talk about Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. What does it look like to live as a sacrifice? It means we're willing to give up our comfort. It means we're willing to give up our dreams. Our dreams! It means we're willing to give up our future for the sake of God's comfort for lost sinners for the sake of God's dream of saving this lost world for the sake of God's future of heaven coming down to earth for us it's a complete perspective shift in why you're living your life what are you living for today it's no longer about you that's what he's trying to teach Jonah here Jonah do you do well to think this way listen if you've been living for something else do you do well Do you do well to think that way? Do you do well to live for that? Or would it be that you should allow God's compassion to capture your heart so that he can show his compassion through you? Let's pray.